The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome to all of you. It's nice to see you tonight on this lovely, I guess it's almost winter, not quite winter, still fall night. Tonight begins a series of talks on wise speech. Wise speech, or sometimes called right speech, is one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, which the Buddha is one of the foundational teachings of the Buddha. It was one of his first teachings that he delivered, and it was the very last teaching that he delivered as he lay uh, dying. The Eightfold Path is divided and traditionally divided into three parts, uh, Pana, Sila, and Samadhi, wisdom, morality, and concentration. And wise speech along with uh, wise livelihood and wise action are the three parts of the Eightfold Path that are focused on morality, virtue. And virtue and morality in the system that the Buddha taught is the foundation for developing concentration. You might notice sometime when you're sitting that if there's something that you've done that you're not quite happy about or that you're uncomfortable about or you feel badly about, it's hard to meditate. That can become actually the object of our meditation focus on that thought that just keeps coming and coming and coming because I hung up the phone and talking with my mother and I was harsh in my tone and I feel badly about it. So that's just an example of how wise speech is part of morality, which is part of developing concentration. Tonight, I'm not really going to talk a lot about the elements of wise speech. What I'm going to do is give a quick overview of the elements of wise speech. I'm going to really focus on the motivation and intention that determines our speech. And then talk about listening as a very important aspect of speech. Listening both internally and externally. Next week, Inez... Friedman will talk about the particular elements of wise speech. And then two weeks from tonight, Marika Kastner will focus on the practical aspects of wise speech. Wise speech, for example, as a nonviolent form of communication. So those are the three talks that are in this series that I'm launching. So first, a brief little overview of the elements of wise speech. There are traditionally five don'ts of wise speech and five do's of wise speech. The don'ts are pretty easy to guess the first one, truthfulness, don't lie, don't use false speech, don't have malicious speech, speech that's intended to divide one person from another. We all know that speech. Jeez, you won't believe what I just heard about Jane. Can you believe that Jane did blah, 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 blah. So we are talking to Jim and we've just divided Jim from Jane. Don't use harsh speech. Angry, loud, hurtful speech. And then finally, one that's probably the most difficult in our culture is chatter, idle speech, and particularly gossip. My grandmother, who was one of my favorite beings on the planet, uh, I'm old enough to remember in Pickens County, South Carolina, where I spent most of my summers, she had a little crank phone. And she would call Myrtle, who was the town operator, and say, Myrtle, get me Miss Sinner. And Myrtle would say, while she was busy getting Miss Sinner, she might say, well, she's on the phone with Ms. Jones, and I'll call you back when she gets off the phone. And 
let you know and I'll connect you. And Myrtle, of course, felt it was just fine for her to listen in on anybody's conversation in the town that she felt good and right about listening in on. And she would be happy to pass along any information. And my grandmother definitely enjoyed talking to Myrtle. So it was very idle chatter and it was definitely gossip. So don't lie. Don't have malicious, divisive speech. Don't use harsh speech and don't use idle chatter. And I said five. There are actually only four. But there are five do's. The fundamental one is do have an intention, a loving kindness intention to support when you speak. And that's one we're going to talk about a lot tonight. Then there's truthfulness, kindness, helpfulness, and timeliness. And when I think about those four do's, it's most skillful for me to connect two of them, two pairs. I find that truthfulness connects very closely with kindness. And helpfulness connects very closely with timeliness. For example, all of us are filled with good advice for other people. When someone comes to me and begins to tell me something going on with them, I instantly know exactly what they should do to take care of their problem, being the wise elderly person that I am. But have you ever noticed that very often when someone gives you advice, it's not the right time. I'm just not ready to hear that particular piece of advice. And often when I give someone advice, it's not the right time. They're not ready to let go of their anger. They're not ready to change their diet. They're not ready to come to meditation on Thursday night at IMC. So, noticing that when I try to be helpful, it's essential that I choose the right time. Likewise, when I am truthful, I can be very truthful from my perspective and cut you up like I had a sword because I'm not being kind. And so... Marrying kindness and truthfulness encourages me to be truthful in a way that is helpful and timely and to be kind in a way that's truthful. So Inez will talk more about those elements of wise speech next week. But let's turn to the focus of tonight. Having spent 40 years being a lawyer, the power of speech is something that has fascinated me. We have great traditions around it, and there's a great sacredness to the power of the word. It's actually an ancient philosophy that goes back to Plato and the Greek Stoics and the Gospel of St. John, among other places, in the New Testament, where you can read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, And the word was God. When I was deeply into yoga philosophy, I discovered this quotation in the Rig Veda, which is one of the ancient uh, Upanishad scriptures of the Hindus that the Buddha studied in the beginning of his spiritual journey. And in the Rig Veda, it is written, In the beginning was Brahman, with whom was the word? And the word was truly the supreme Brahman. I'm sure a lot of Christians, including my father, who was a Southern Baptist minister, would be very upset with the idea that whoever wrote the Gospel of John was plagiarizing from the Rig Veda. (laughs) And while that's possible, and maybe even likely, it's perhaps more pertinent that the fundamental truths are discovered and rediscovered in culture after culture. And of course, the ones that are discovered in our culture, we believe are the right ones, and we have the truth. But here we have just another example 
of the power of the word and the mysteriousness of it in our world. Many years ago, I visited a wonderful yoga ashram in Virginia along the James River. It was founded by a yoga teacher named Swami Satchidananda. And it was paid for, ironically, by a wonderful singer. Those of you from the 60s will remember Carol King. She was a disciple of Satchidananda and beautiful place. And, and they built a gorgeous shrine, one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. If you're ever in that part of Virginia, don't miss it. It's in the shape of a huge lotus. And it kind of is out in the middle of the farmland in Virginia. It's a little weird. And it's pink. And it has 12 sides. And you go in on the first ground floor. And in the 12 sides, there's a glass encased shrine to 10 of the 10 major religions in the world has the sacred books of that religion and some objects, sacred objects and pictures and various paraphernalia. And then it has, for the 11th, it has a shrine to all the minor, small religions. And then my favorite is the 12th, which is a shrine to those religions not yet created. And in one of then if you go upstairs into the meditation room, there is a beautiful light sculpture that starts is based in each of those 12 shrines on the first floor. And then upstairs in the meditation room, they go way up into the vaulted ceiling and join together in one tube that comes right down in the middle. And in each of those 12 sides in the meditation hall is a... Um, cabinet on which is a plaque that has in the words of that particular religion some saying that God is light. But in the shrine for the uh, African religions on that first floor, I found these words, which I have loved for the 25 years or so ago it was. In the beginning was God. Today is God. Tomorrow will be God. Who can make an image of God? He has no body. God is a word that comes out of your mouth. That word, it is no more. It is past. And still it lives. So is God. That was written by Ba Mubita of Zaire. So in all cultures and religions, we find this sacredness of, a, of the word. And when we give our word or when we put our hand on the sacred book and affirm or swear to tell the truth, we are affirming that sacredness of the word. But boy, has it been denigrated in our culture. We've just been through a fascinating and horrendous election cycle where we've seen vast differences in the way the word is used in our culture. I don't know if you've ever seen a little book by Jack Kornfeld on, I think it's entitled Loving Kindness and Forgiveness and something else. I can't remember the whole title. There's a wonderful story in it. And uh, Jack writes that he was on a train going from Washington, I think, to New York or vice versa. And he happened to sit next to a man who was in charge of the juvenile detention facilities in Washington, D.C., where there's a tremendous amount of juvenile crime. And the man told him this story, that a young boy had been brought to trial for a gangland drive-by shooting that occur far too often in our culture. And he was convicted of having killed another young boy, 15 or 16 years old. And the decedent's mother sat in the courtroom during the entire trial. And at the end of the trial, when the accused was convicted, the mother stood up 
and in a very loud, clear voice said, I'm going to kill you. Now, just think for a minute. What did you what do you immediately assume was the intention behind her statement? Every act, every word that we use, every speech that we make has an intent. And that motivation, that intention is there, whether we're conscious of it or not. It's the volition is the mental urge or signal that precedes an action. So notice that I closed my hand and was kind of gesturing. The intention behind that was the emphasis. And I'm sure you got that. You felt that in my move. But before I made that move, there was an intention in my mind. This is important. Make sure they get this. When we sit and have the urge to move because we're feeling a pain, there is a process. First, we feel that sensation. And if that sensation is painful, it leads to a desire for pleasure. The desire for pleasure leads to the thought and intention I need to shift my hips just a little bit. And that leads to a bodily movement. As we pay attention to our intentions, we begin to see the connection between our mind and our body and how there's a system that we're mostly unconscious of and mostly unaware of. How many times have you said something to someone And then they had a reaction that surprised you. And you said, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. Or, oh, I didn't intend it that way. You misunderstood me. When we examine our intent, we create the freedom to choose a different action, a more skillful action. But learning to examine our intention is a place of mindfulness that requires practice. So when this woman stood up and said in a loud, vociferous voice with force in the courtroom, I'm going to kill you. She then left. The young boy was taken away and put in juvenile detention and months and months went by. And one day she came to visit this young boy. He was not happy to see her. Remembering that remark, I'm sure. And their visit was brief. She found out that no one had visited him in the entire time he had been there. And she left a little bit of money for him to buy whatever he could buy there at the prison. And as several years passed, she came and visited him repeatedly over time. And they began to talk and connect and have a relationship. And eventually she found out after a number of years that he was going to be released And one day she said, what are you going to do when you're released? And he said, I don't know. She said, do you have a job or any place to go? And he said, no. She said, well, there's a man in my church that might be able to give you some work. I'll find out. And the next time she came, she said, I have the possibility of work for you. But do you have any place to live? He said, no. She said, well, I happen to have a spare room. You can come and stay with me. And he did. Is there a little bit of tension wondering how this story turns out? (laughs) What was her intent? Do we have an Alfred Hitchcock story going here or do we have something else? 
months went by and he did work and he would come home and she would have dinner for him and cared for him. And one night he came home and she said after he had eaten, she invited him into her living room and said, I'd like to talk with you. And he sat down, I imagine with a little trepidation. And she said, do you remember that time at the end of your trial when I said, I'm going to kill you? He said, yes, I do. She said, well, I have. The boy that killed my son is dead. I have. And who you are is different. And as you know, I have no son. And you have no family. I would like to adopt you and have you live with me and be my son. So even with those kind of words, the intention mattered. A classic story that uh, Milarepa used to tell about intent was coming into a market, a busy crowded market, and seeing a man pounding and beating with great force on another man and the crowd standing by in horror until out of the man's throat came a snake that had crawled into his throat when he was asleep. So if we just looked at those actions of pounding and beating, we would assume that the intent was a hurtful one. But since he was trying to save the man's life who was getting ready to drown, asphyxiate because of what had crawled into his mouth, clearly his intention was helpful. The power of our intention makes all the difference in our actions. But how do we know what that intention is unless we learn to be mindful of it? Is our intent when we speak to be truthful and kind? Or is it to hurt? Is it to gossip? Is it to be divisive? Sometimes when we say, I didn't intend it that way, it's true. We didn't. We were unskillful. Other times when I've said I didn't intend it that way, it's because I was unconscious and I did, in fact, intend it that way. But I didn't want to acknowledge that I intended it that way because I was caught in my own unconscious disconnection with that person. So here are a few tools to help Focus on that motivation, that what my intention is. First is the mindfulness instructions that I just gave at the beginning tonight. As you started to find your breath, to note your breath. Note inhale, note exhale. So when I speak, especially when it's an important connection or conversation I'm getting ready to have. To take a moment to notice what is arising in me. Notice the thoughts and note what they are. Is it nervousness? Am I feeling anxiety? Huh, if I pause and look, I see that I'm upset with my sister. And I'm getting ready to talk to her. I'm on alert now. And I pay attention to my words more carefully. Because I know that I'm upset with her. Maybe it's not an appropriate, timely, and kind time to clear up that upset with her. But I can certainly pay attention to my words so that I don't exacerbate that upset. So, noticing and noting. The second one is balancing my inner intention and my outer intention. The world is so busy. There is so much stimulation that we have that our intention, 
I'm sorry, our attention is pulled outwardly. Meditation, of course, helps us train to have an inward intention. So even when I'm speaking right now to you, I am focusing on my body and my own intention. I'm aware of my breathing as I speak. I'm aware of the tension or relaxation in my body, which affects the tone of my voice, the way I'm present to you, the way you feel me, all of those aspects. And the more I can keep that balance of inward and, excuse me, outward attention to my intention, the more I'll be aware of it. Recent neuroscience shows that we have what are called mirror neurons. And how those mirror neurons work is that when you are speaking to me, I not only hear your words, but I feel your words. And those sensations go down what's called the insula, which is sort of the highway in the, in the brain, into my gut, into my kinesthetic physicalness. Not in my head, but in my body. And in my body, in my kinestheticness, I feel your words and I send the signal of that feeling back up into my brain. And those mirror neurons are activated and I actually feel your feelings. We are wired, in other words, in, in other words, for empathy. Many of us have a more developed sense of that. Many of us are too caught in our heads to notice it, but it's happening anyway. We're just not as aware of it. So by focusing my inner and outer attention, I can be more aware of my mirroring impact of your feelings and be more connected and more clear with you when I speak. Thirdly, paying attention again to those connections between truthfulness and kindness and timeliness and helpfulness so that when I start to give you advice and I feel you close off go cold, back away from me, I can go, oh, it's not the right time. Hush up, Daniel, and listen instead of knowing the answer. So, noticing and noting what's going on with me, beginning to pay attention to inner and outer, and paying attention to those connections between truthfulness and kindliness and timeliness and helpfulness. Now, our minds immediately go, but that's so much, and it is. So let me tell you a key about developing, personally and spiritually. There's only one thing up at the time. Always in life, there's only one thing up at a time. Now, the one thing I'm referring to is thematic. It's thematic like the theme of a novel or the theme of a movie or the theme of a symphony. We get distracted by the circumstance and all that's happening and all that we're thinking. And we don't listen on the thematic level. So, for example, there was a time four or five years ago, it was a time that actually is the reason I ended up here in California on the left coast instead of in South Carolina on the right coast. But that's a longer story. And at that time, the work that I was doing running the Conflict Resolution Center at Duke Law School 
suddenly crumbled around me. And I had been recruited there by two people that I thought were my dear close friends. It turned out that they were unbeknownst to me having an affair with each other and had made off with several hundred thousand dollars, leaving no money. At the same time, my marriage of 25 years dissolved. And at the same time, I went back to take another job when Duke fell apart with a dear friend of mine, and that turned into a major disaster. And I had, up until that point, prided myself on my communication and relational skills, because I'd worked on them a long time. And all of a sudden, everywhere I looked, relationships were falling off, falling apart on me. Now, I had a choice. I could deal with the circumstances or I could pay attention to the theme that was arising and steer my life thematically as opposed to circumstantially. And when I chose the former, one day I got a call from a friend of mine and said, I'm getting ready to put on a conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan for lawyers and law professors interested in contemplative spiritual practices. And I know you've been doing that for a long time. He and I had taught at several conferences together and he said, you have to come. I said, Lynn, I am a mess. It's hard for me to even look in the mirror, let alone look at somebody else and see all these people that I know I can't do it. He called me back a week or so later and I said no again. He called me back, I don't remember now, two or three more times. And finally one day he called me back and said, I bought a plane ticket for you. <laughs> On the plane flying from Chicago to Kalamazoo, Michigan, I'm sitting there just kind of dazed, which is the way I was at that particular time. I had been hammered so many times by life that I was just dazed. You may have felt that way from time to time in your life. And in the seat in front of me was the back of a head of a woman. And I was mesmerized by the back of her head. <laughs> and I heard her voice. I couldn't hear what she was saying, but I heard her voice. And it was angelic. She's now my wife of one year. <laughs> now, it took a lot of courage in the middle of disaster to move from the East Coast where my family has lived in South Carolina since the 1700s to California. And what allowed me to do that was the recognition that I'm offering to you. Steering our lives thematically rather than circumstantially is the way to develop ourselves spiritually and consciously. So I've given you three tricks, tips about focusing on motivation and intention in speech. But what I encourage you to do with everything I talk about tonight is choose one thing. And work on that. Because the way the universe works is that everything is connected to everything else. So if I work on what's up for me thematically in my life, I promise you everything else is connected and it will all come together. So, how we do that is we have to learn to listen. I had to learn to listen for a theme. You can't just make it up, although that's mostly what we do. But once we get away from the blur of the circumstances of our life and learn to listen, things change. Meditation is essentially Training for listening. 
And listening has obviously two components, internal and external. They're connected, and there's not really a difference, because what I hear out there from you is merely a reflection of what I've chosen to focus on. And how I hear you is merely a reflection of the distinctions that I've created as being important in my life. And the ones of you that I choose to be connected to, or attracted to, or interested in, are the ones that embody the things that connect me, or attract me, or repel me. So we all make it all up. And it depends upon what we listen to. Mostly we listen to the circumstances of our lives. Oh, I'm too fat. Or, oh, I'm too skinny. Or, oh, I need to work more. Or, oh, I need to work less. Or, oh, my mother-in-law is driving me crazy. Or, oh, my partner is a jerk. Or, oh, I don't have enough money. Or, oh, I have too much money. That would be an interesting problem to have. (laughs) We listen to the circumstances. We don't listen thematically. The theme emerges. It arises when we listen. So listening internally. When I'm speaking to you, when you're speaking to me, I'm listening both internally and externally. Our mind hears on many channels. Most of them we automatically shut down because there's so much stimulus that we can't handle it all. In fact, that's mostly what our mind does is shut out stimuli. Just imagine walking down Market Street in San Francisco on a Saturday afternoon. There is so much coming at me that I have to block some of it out. That's what our mind mostly does. When I'm at my mother's house, which I will be in a couple of weeks, and she's, she's wonderful, she's the best, there's a lot of stimuli because my father sort of hangs around there like a ghost. And boy, that's a long and dreary trip. But that's the stimuli that comes. And then my fundamentalist right-wing sister comes along. (laughs) And that's a whole lot to listen to. And then my daughter is there. And then they're all friends. And I practiced law there for 20 years and was public defender and politicians and friends. And there's a lot. So learning to listen thematically. So when I go to Charleston, South Carolina in a few weeks, the theme that I will steer by is my love and connection for my mother and my daughter. And my actions will arise from that theme. And what I hear and what I listen to, what I shut out and what I allow in, will be guided by that theme. And that's my intention. When I listen to my mother talk, and she does love to talk to me, we talk every day at 5.30 as I get on the bus to ride home from the city out to Sausalito, and she, she's great. There are two parts to listening. There's the content of what we hear, and there's that mirror neuron empathetic physical kinesthetic knowing of what we hear. So when I speak to someone and I want to connect with them and I really want to clear up an upset or just have a loving communication or serve them or serve myself, I must 
here on those three channels. Channel one is inside Daniel. Channel two is the content of what you're saying to me. And channel three is my kinesthetic, empathetic connection with what you're saying to me. And when you're done talking, if I want to seal and affirm the circularity of that connection, then I say to you, what I just heard you say was, and I don't repeat it back in some rote fashion, but I summarize the essence of what you've said, and I say something like, that must make you feel very sad, or that must have been terrifying for you, or that must have been delightful and happy experience. So I affirm the content of what you say and I, I, I say the content back to you of what you've said and I give you my empathetic sense of the feeling that I'm getting that I think you have. And that gives you the opportunity to correct me or affirm me. And you can say, Oh, you got that almost right, Daniel. Or no, I didn't feel sad. I felt devastated. And rather than resisting your correction, I listen and I go, oh, okay. You felt devastated. And our connection gets deeper and closer. And so then you speak again and I say, well, I heard you saying ABC and that must have made you feel devastated also. And you say back, yes, Daniel, that's almost right. What I really said was ABC and you missed D or I really meant to say D. And yes, it did make me feel devastated and our connection deepens. It's a very simple thing and it's an extraordinarily profound thing to listen on three channels at once. Internally, externally to the substance of what you've said and externally to the empath- internally to the empathetic, connected, kinesthetic feeling tone that I get from you. And then to play back to you those latter two channels, and check it out with you. This is especially important. I'm telling you the way I work as a mediator to help people come from this place to this place. They can't do it for each other, but I do it for each side. And in modeling that for each side, They begin to hear each other for the first time. You can do it with that teenager of yours that you have such a hard time with or that weird sister or brother of yours that you have difficulty with or whoever in your life you have difficulty with. And any time you're out in the world and you just run into someone and you want to serve them, You want to give a gift to yourself and them. I guarantee you, if you say back to someone what you've just heard them say and affirm the feeling that you've gotten that they're having, magic happens. All of us, the deepest desire we have as human beings is to be heard and affirmed as another human being. We thirst for it. We do really stupid things in order to get it from someone who can't give it to us. Why? Because the practice of the golden rule is step two in life. Remember, In virtually every world religion, there's a variant of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
The reason it's the second step is that phrase of as you would have them do unto you. We do unto ourselves so badly that what we expect or look for from others to do to us is pretty bad also. And so that's what we get and give. Practice listening to yourself and practice kindness to yourself. This is currently my thematic, meditative, steering my life by practice. I can't tell you the number of times during the day that I catch myself going, hurry up, Daniel. Jeez. Here you are, goofing around again. Snap to it. (laughs) Or variants of that, there's usually, the language is usually more colorful and I'm mindful that I'm being taped. But you get the picture. And I stop and I notice and note self-criticism, self-directed anger, impatience, And I notice that I had lost that inner and outer balance, that I had gotten right up into my head, totally out of my body, completely unaware of my body, just tension and hurry and haste. So I notice in note number one, I reestablish that inner and outer connectedness, number two, and then I'm able to pay attention to the connection between helpfulness and kindness and timeliness and helpfulness, kindness and truthfulness and timeliness and helpfulness. And I'm not being kind or truthful with myself at that moment. So I have found that the more I practice the golden rule to Daniel, the more I'm able to practice it with you and you and you in my life. So the golden rule is step two. Step one is noticing how much of the unwise speech, the anger, the lack of kindness, the divisiveness, the harshness that we direct at ourselves. So, a couple of questions to leave you with. Where do you need to develop in your practice of wise speech and wise listening? It's just a koan to think about over the next few days. And remember one thing, one thing only. The way we stop ourselves from developing and waking up is we get all these things that we should be doing and all these things that we've heard and learned and we're trying to practice all this whole list of things and we lose every one of them and we go, oh, just one, just one. And what is that specific thing that you hear that unites all the issues in your life and unites all the issues around your speaking and your listening. What do you keep bumping up against? It's just hitting in the face, like relationship was hitting me in the face on that, in that period of my life five years ago, and two, six years ago, 2002, 2003 kept hitting me in the face. And finally I said, oh, that's it. What is that one thing? So, any questions or comments? Well, you've given us a lot to think about um, that I think was very good and very helpful. Thank you. 
and I cannot ask an intelligent question right now because I really want to think about this. It's very good. But I do want to know, um, what is, can you repeat the name of the, of the place in Virginia that you went to that had the 11 shrines? That sounds very interesting. It's called the um, Swami Satchidananda. S-A-T, Chit, C-H-I-T, Ananda, A-N-A-N-D-A. Sat, Chit, Ananda. It means uh, truth, wisdom, and I forget. What? Ananda. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yes, Sat, Chit, Ananda. It's in James, it's on the James River uh, not too far from Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm sorry? I don't believe so. Oh, it's, what did you ask? He was still alive. It was a big deal back in the day. Yes. And just as a little observation, you might look at what is it that pulls you in this moment and all of us to feel like we have to ask intelligent questions. <laughs> There's that paradox, you know. I need to know before I can ask. And not knowing is a very powerful place. Over here, yes. Well, I don't have to ask an intelligent question. Good. I want to know, how, how did you finally get together with the lady in seat in front of you? <laughs> well, since you're really wonderful and I love to tell this story, I will tell the very short version of it. Things were definitely going downhill. And uh, that on that one occasion when we met at the conference, we had a nice walk. And then a year later, we saw each other at another conference. And after that second brief visit, we had uh, breakfast together and we actually led a workshop together. Uh, we started calling and emailing and I was coming out here to visit my daughter who was uh, living in Monterey. So one Thursday, I got the courage to send her an email. I definitely didn't have the courage to say what I'm getting ready to say in person over the phone. And I said, I find myself thinking about you as more than a friend, and I'm coming out to visit my daughter, and I wonder if we could have dinner. I check my email maybe once every two or three minutes. <laughs> nothing on Thursday, nothing on Friday. Nothing on Saturday, and I was at least in the fifth grade or the sixth grade by that time. <laughs> but the truth was, all that had happened to me, I was a, a rejection waiting to happen, so, you know, there it was. And on Sunday, I was meditating, and I got very clear that I needed to leave the position that I had left Duke and gone back to D.C. for. That was a disaster. And I didn't have a plan B, but I got crystal clear that I was done. And I stood up from my meditation cushion. I was living at the time in the mole-infested basement of my former neighbor's house. And... Yeah, right. And I stood up and the phone rang. And it was Dana. And I was shocked because she, we, you know, maybe once every two or three weeks. But of course, I had sent her that email. And she said, I've got something that I need to talk to you about. And I went, oh, shit. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> and she said, I find myself thinking about you as more than just a friend. 
And I wonder if when you come out to visit your daughter, we could go to dinner. Word for word, literally, because we checked it out later. She had written out her little talk. And she got the email. That's right. She had, she had been in a workshop with Angelus Arian. Some of you might have heard of her, a social anthropologist who teaches up in Sausalito. Working on manifesting your dreams. And one of her dreams was a relationship. So Angelus had said, you need to ask him if he's available. And so she was scared and she wrote it all out and she called me up. And I started to weep because I was a rejection waiting to happen and it wasn't happening. And so I couldn't speak, literally. You must have been very disappointed. <laughs> exactly. I literally couldn't speak. And, of course, she then went back to the second grade and said, well, you know, if you're not interested, we could still. So. Yes, good, good, good. So, any other questions? Yes. Um, well, this might be a, a kind of a downer. I, I was actually interested in how the theme of the circumstances you found yourself in that wasn't skillful prior to this turnaround in your life. I mean, a variety of different relationships were going down in flames, and you being so skilled at communicating and listening, etc. There was a theme there that you missed. Yes. Believing I knew. Oh. And because of that belief, you became deaf to what was actually That's present. right. I stopped listening because I knew. Why should I listen? I already knew. And so I wasn't listening. I didn't hear my wife. I didn't hear my friends who were deceiving me. And I didn't hear lots of other things as well. You were an island. That's right. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. I have a question. I um, just want to know, sometimes there's circumstances you try to listen to the family members, say, next, different generation, and uh, try to understand each other. And uh, but uh, that just like a two channel, sometimes it's how. I, my question is just how can a two channel channel we cannot hear each other because different channel. Yes. So in the real life, there's a lot of time people talking in a different channel. Yes. So my question is. Uh, how I think uh, diff- even different channel maybe for me say my channel I try to understand that channel to deliver to communicate mm-hmm. the right way. Mm-hmm. And of course, I learned uh, very gratefully, um, time timely with helpful mm-hmm. and uh, kindness and uh, truthfulness. Mm-hmm. So at this point, um, I'd like to you to give a little bit more discussion as this different channel we how put effort to connect to them but I guess you talked to some but uh... if I want to hear you I need to listen on your channel not mine and before you can possibly hear me you have to feel heard And, of course, vice versa. So somebody's got to go first. And that's really hard for us to do as human beings because we want the other person to go first and hear and affirm us. And then it becomes easy to hear and affirm them. But if you really want practice the golden rule on yourself first, 
so that when you're in that difficult conversation situation, there's more heart available to hear them first and make that affirmation of what I hear you saying is ABC. And that must make you feel whatever I'm getting. And when you do just those two simple things, you will notice a great over there. And then do it again. And get another over there. And then do it again. And get another release over there. And finally, do it yet again. And then seek to be heard yourself. Now, the only caveat that I would change in that is if the person over there is being physically or emotionally abusive. If I'm in a place where somebody is yelling and screaming and being hurtful to me, then I would shape what I just said to you differently. Take care of yourself. Don't put yourself in a place where you can be harmed. But if that's not going on, and for the most part, that's not the kind of communications we have with people. There's tinges of that, but it's not the dominant. And if it's not the dominant, then practice the golden rule on yourself. Build up your own heart capacity and then go into that difficult place and hear them and hear them and hear them and hear them and then ask to be heard. Yes, sir. I'm confused or I don't understand. So when the lady shouted, I want to kill you, did she want to kill him or wanted to adopt him or she was just frustrated? I don't know what was her intention. Well, we, in the story, we learn her true intention by how she acted. She wanted to wipe out that evil. And she was wise enough to know unlike most of our political leaders, that you don't defeat evil with more evil. The Buddha said, you cannot end evil with hate. You cannot end hatred with hatred. You end hatred with love. And she knew that. And so she set out to end that evil by loving it. And she succeeded. Yes, last over, over there and then over there. So it seems to me that you're probably really familiar with NBC. Not really, but I, I am familiar with it, yes. And the guy who created it. I yes, Marshall Rosenberg, yes. Right. So I just wanted to kind of make a point to bring that up because it seems like a lot of people are really interested in it. And if they were to research Marshall Rosenberg, you could learn a lot about this particular style of communication, you know, like a lot of the questions that you have and stuff. Um, she has books and CDs, and there's groups around town where people meet, and they actually practice this type of communication in, um, you know, set, settings like this. <laughs> Great. Thanks. And Marika is actually going to focus on that in a couple of weeks. So, over here. This will have to be the last question because I'm sure some of you need to go home. It's not so much a question. I think I really appreciated two themes you two things you brought up today because I think it really put things into perspective for me. I think the first thing was how you realize that getting caught up in circumstances 
it was almost like, you know, I see myself headed on this path of life like a river. And when I get caught up in circumstances, I'm taking these tributaries, whoa, flowing this way, flowing that way. And when you finally figure out what is the theme that you want to live your life by, you start to realize how to get back to the river. So for me, you know, uh, one difficult person in my life that's very close to me but I've had difficulty communicating with, um, I was asking myself, you know, I started this Buddhist practice, why am I still having trouble? Um, And I realized that when I finally said to myself, I have a choice between ill will and loving kindness. I have that choice. And if I choose ill will, the more times I practice that, the more times I'm going to keep coming back regardless of my intentions. Um, And when I finally noticed that it didn't matter to me if I was right or wrong, Um, because the comment that you were talking about um, about communicating with someone. I think for me, when I finally let go of the fact that I need to be right and that I need to be heard, but that, wait a minute, what if she was not heard? What if she in her life just felt that she was never heard and it's my, not my job or duty, but what if I stopped and listened and let go of myself for that one point? and that really drove me back to loving kindness over ill will. Good for you. We all have that fundamental choice over and over in life, whether to be right or to be in relationship. And usually we choose to be right. And in that moment, you chose to be in relationship. And that's a very powerful choice. This is by Wendell Berry. And it's called a silence. Though the air is full of singing, my head is loud with the labor of words. Though the season is rich with fruit, my tongue hungers for the sweet of speech. Though the beach is golden, I cannot stand beside it mute, but must say it is golden while the leaves stir and fall with a sound that is not a name. It is in the silence that my hope is and my aim. A song whose lines I cannot make or sing sounds men's silence like a root. Let me say and not mourn. The world lives in the death of speech and sings there. Let's sit for just a minute. Let's offer the merit of our time together to all those who are suffering from the power of words. May they find peace in their own heart Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for your attention and have a wonderful holiday season. Bless you all.